0: Teaching people how to write successfully is not just an important skill. It's also a business. Unless you have useful knowledge,
1: people are not going to call on you and ask for your advice or ask for your help to make something better. so to speak. Whether they pay you, or not doesn't matter. They're not going to ask if you don't have something that's useful that you bring to the table.
0: Writing an admissions essay that'll get you into your top choice in college is no easy task, but help is available.
2: Most of my job was actually translating what companies' employees were thinking into something their executives could actually understand. So in other words, people were just really bad at communicating all of the thoughts in their minds in a well-structured way where they could actually make an argument to other people that could be understood and then could be executed on.
0: This is the Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs, anyone thinking about a startup or a business pivot, or just getting underway and looking for some help. Hear from experts who've been there and done that. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, we meet Brad Schiller, founder of Prompt His goal? Teach people how to write an essay that can get them admitted to the college of their choice. But first, Greg Stoller talks with Steve Graham, Wright Center professor at Arizona State University, who specializes in teaching writing development effectively. Here's Greg Stoller.
3: Thank you, Don. Everybody is always looking for a monetization opportunity, but what happens if you're an academic? Is that part of the deal or are you possibly crossing a line? Our next guest can certainly tell us that. Welcome Steve Graham to the Language of Business. Uh, glad to be here, thanks for having me. You are a professor at Arizona State University, and how have you been so successful monetizing what you're doing from either a research perspective or in the classroom?
1: Well, I think one other thing right from the start is I actually have a day job, which is being a university professor. And so one of the things that I try to make sure of is that all the activities that I engage in center around my goals that relate both to the university position, but also my goals in terms of my scholarship and research more broadly. And basically put, that can be simplified to say, what I really want to do is have an impact on students learning in schools. We make schools the best that we can. And my particular focus is on helping students become the best writers they can so that they can use that for writing and learning. So if you think about that particular context, the way in which I have opportunities to make some money on the side, if you'd like, is through a whole bunch of different kind of activities. One of them is I work with material companies like McGraw-Hill or Houghton Mifflin or in the past Zane or Bloser to help them design instructional materials that students use in the elementary schools. And so on these particular kind of things, I operate as a senior author. I help them think about what that instruction is going to look like, what the material is going to be that students are going to use. And as a result of that, then I get a small royalty that occurs over the years. Another kind of thing that I do is that one of the, I guess, joys of being an academic person is that I have the summers off. The disadvantage to that is I don't get paid during the summer unless I find some other ways of making money. And so one of the things I've done in the last couple of years is I've had a side job working at a learning science institute in Australia at the Australian Catholic University in Brisbane. And they pay 40% of my salary for my work there during that time. And I get to continue doing the work that I like to do in terms of research and writing. Another thing that I do is create grants with other faculty members at different universities that pay for part of my salary during the academic year, but also my summer salary. And we have a number of grants where we take a look at writing, writing instruction, and using writing as a tool to support reading and learning. I also do other activities, smaller in scope, and some of these are not for money. Often they're not, but sometimes they are and they include a variety of things, such as creating books that share the research for other academics, books for teachers that share how to put into play things that we develop or test or find to be effective through our scholarship. I also do presentations and keynotes at various conferences, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S. I do workshops for teachers that sometimes run a day, sometimes run four or five days, and not surprisingly, you're rewarded for that in terms of a monetary award for carrying that out. I also serve as consultant for government agencies and private agencies, ranging from the Zuckerman Initiative to the Gates Foundation, National Institute of Health, all the way to whatworth's Clearinghouse. And then just a couple of other things that I'd mentioned. So in a sense, I guess, I don't think of them as hustles. I think of them as things where I carry out my agenda, and some of those are rewarded monetarily and some that are not. But I also have served as an editor for five different research journals, and at least three of them have provided me with a small salary for the work that I do there. And I serve as consultants on a variety of different grants that other people have put together, providing advice And I've also served as consultants on various curriculum materials outside the ones that I mentioned that there's a senior author on. So there's a lot of different things going on in terms of how academics and education, in my case, monetize their knowledge and experience. And some of those pay a reasonable amount of money and some of those pay a very small amount, but they all supplement what you do. It's like a boat with the oars pulling in the same direction. I don't want to do anything that doesn't support my goal of helping students become better writers and helping teachers become better
3: teachers. You must have a very robust calendar app that you use to keep all of those balls in the air or all of those oars rowing that same boat.
1: You would think that's the case, but in some ways I'm the least digital person when it comes to calendars (laughs) that you know. I still have a paper calendar and I look at that every day to make sure I don't miss anything.
3: I love it. Let's talk about your content. The content that you use to make students better writers, is that content you've independently developed on your own, or are you allowed to license it from your university? Help us to understand that, please.
1: There's a couple of different ways of thinking about content here. And one of those, you know, I mentioned knowledge and experience. Unless you have useful knowledge, people are not going to call on you and ask for your advice or ask for your help to make something better, so to speak whether they pay you or not, doesn't matter. They're not going to ask if you don't have something that's useful that you bring to the table. One way of thinking about knowledge is that there's been a host of things that have been done over the last 100 years in my particular specialty area, writing and also reading, that I've taken great pains to try to learn as much as I can about, starting at the start of the 1900s all the way forward, so that I have a rich sense of what kinds of things have been tested, what kinds of things that work, and what kinds of things don't work when you think about teaching writing. In addition to that, my colleagues and I have tested out, in some ways you could think of me as a researcher who does interventional studies, we've tested out a variety of procedures that other people have used, often with different groups of kids, and procedures that we've developed ourselves. That's another form of knowledge that people are interested in, whether it's State departments of education, whether it's school systems particularly, whether it's people who develop commercial materials. Another kind of knowledge, and I think this is particular to academics, is that over the course of my career, I've developed a considerable well of knowledge about how to conduct certain kinds of research. That's also knowledge that other people are interested in. When I said that I worked in Australia, basically what I do there is I work with other faculty, more junior, to help them increase and develop their research capacity. There's multiple forms of knowledge that you can bring to this. Some of it is knowledge that I personally with my colleagues have developed, but other is knowledge that Through meta-analysis, through systematic reviews, we've gotten a very good handle in terms of what works. And to be quite honest, some of the knowledge is also clinical knowledge that people have talked about over the last century or so about how to teach specific aspects of writing. The science of education isn't far enough along yet for somebody to say, oh, we know everything we need to do. I doubt that it will ever be that far along.
3: Let me ask that question in reverse. How much are you able to integrate that knowledge, regardless of where it's originated, into your courses for the benefit of your students?
1: One of the things that I've been fortunate in doing is being able to teach courses that directly relate to the kinds of research that I do. Uh, the courses I teach usually are courses on how to teach reading or writing. And so I draw directly from my own research on doing that. Or they're research courses that I teach for doctoral students on how to conduct research. And so I'm able to directly draw from my experience as a researcher there's a one-to-one correspondence between what I teach and what I do in my day job, so to speak.
3: And for people who aren't familiar with the academic system or the tenure system or everything that goes into that, if you ever switch universities, what happens to the ownership of that knowledge?
1: It depends on what kind of knowledge that we're talking about. Let's say that you develop a digital tool and that tool is sold either by yourself or by a company and you're getting some kind of royalties or profit on that. And that's developed on university time or developed while you're at a university. Most universities want a cut of that money. And when you leave the university, they continue to take a cut of that money. When I was at Vanderbilt for about eight years, we developed some stuff that was commercially sold. And Vanderbilt, till the day I die, will keep their percentage of that. Now, what universities don't typically do, especially if it's knowledge developed on a grant, they don't own that knowledge per se. And in fact, most of the granting systems I submit to, they want you to get your knowledge, so to speak, that you develop out there and into the private sector, whether you're making money off of it or somebody else is making money off of it. Why develop this? if nobody's going to use it.
3: Steve, what single piece of advice would you have for someone in academia who's looking to follow your lead and monetize as much as they can, again, keeping their students well-taught, keeping their students happy, but looking to monetize all of their hard work and research that has gone into it? The two biggest
1: things are a very rich and deep knowledge base about the area that you're interested in, because that gives you something that other people will come looking for and ask you about. And then the second thing, don't turn away experiences that help you grow and particularly experiences where you work with other people. Because that gives you the opportunities to learn from them as well. And it also tends to open other doors for you down the road. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed with how much we've got going on and a really nice door open and we shut it because we feel we don't have the time. So sometimes that can be a
3: mistake. Steve, thank you very much. You're welcome. Professor Steve Graham of Arizona State University talking about monetizing his knowledge in the business of education.
0: Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Next up, we hear from Brad Schiller, founder of Probe, a company that specializes in people becoming better communicators and can help coach aspiring students on writing an essay that could get them into their top choice of college, when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top-tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time,
1: felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Questrom has taught me over the past four years.
3: The curriculum at Questrom is really helpful
1: because you get not only study the basics of business such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to
3: sustainability efforts around the world.
2: They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Question School of Business and, like I said, be able to work in
0: any area of the industry. Interested? Go to slash You're listening to The Language of Business. We heard about writing development. Now it's time to bang out that college admission essay. Back to Greg Stuller.
3: Thank you, Don. It's one thing to teach your own children how to write and help prepare them for college, but what would it take for you to outsource that to a professional? Our next guest certainly has an answer for that question. Welcome Brad Schiller to The Language of Business. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. What was your motivation to start Prompt eight years ago? Yeah, that's a great question.
2: And it really comes down to communication. So after I graduated from MIT, I went to work for McKinsey, which is a large consulting firm. And one of the things that I realized when I was there is that most of my job was actually translating what companies' employees were thinking into something their executives could actually understand. So in other words, people were just really bad at communicating all of the thoughts in their minds in a well-structured way where they could actually make an argument to other people that could be understood and then could be executed on.
3: And in that regard, what are the top revenue generating sources for prompt?
2: When we started, right, we were kind of an agnostic writing coaching company. We would focus on anything. And we fell into one market, which is college admissions essays, because people are willing to pay for that. There's a high return on investment to writing coaching. So that's our primary segment in terms of where most of our revenue is coming today. But we also have a segment in workforce communication and in academic.
3: There are so many other companies, Brad, that do similar things. What differentiates Prompt? from your competition?
2: There's a few things that are really important. One is quality. We are turning out a significantly higher quality coaching product than anybody else in the market. The second is price. So we're delivering a comparable or better service for half the price or less of other options. And then the third is really scale. We do roughly 10 times the volume of the next closest company in our space. And we utilize technology to scale up the experience and deliver really consistent quality in a very timely way that also meets all of the customer needs that we're looking for.
3: So that's really impressive. But if you have that degree of scale, why aren't your coaches trying to go direct with your clients and then cut prompt out of
2: the loop? That's a great question. A lot of marketplaces basically have this big question, right? What it really comes down to is we are driving substantial volume of work for each of our coaches and we also are leveraging technology to make that coach experience great. Our coaches get so much value basically by working on our platform with the students that we are sending their way and all of the work that we're sending their way such that they never actually cut us out of the loop. Additionally, for our customers, they're going through the college admissions essay process once, ideally. And so when you're doing that, It's not like we have a multi-year relationship we have a relationship over months where somebody might make a single payment to us or a family make a single payment to us or two payments to us it's not like a multi-year thing where a coach can more easily cut us out of the relationship so the matter of fact is like for the way our business functions we have zero problem with that
3: at volume 10 times largest than the closest competitor what does the future for prompt look like are you going to grow it Are you going to purchase your next smallest competitor or next largest competitor depending on your perspective or are you gonna go for an exit?
2: Always a question that we get. And I think the key here is, is that in the market that we're in, it's so fragmented and we are kind of the most dominant player in that space. But yet we still have such a very tiny percent of the overall market. The college admissions essay market globally is like maybe like a billion dollar market for coaching. And we are a tiny sliver of that at this point. Doesn't mean that we're going to ever get to 10 or 20 percent of the market share, just given how fragmented it is. But there's an opportunity that over the next five years, we think we can grow this to like 30 million plus in revenue. We're really looking at, hey, there's a big opportunity to continue growing this business. But you always say, never say never, depending on who is out there from an acquisition or other that type perspective.
3: You've also started Cogent, which appears to be doing quite well on its own. How do you split your time equally or not between both companies?
2: The real key is, is having really good people. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to bring on a general manager of our college admissions essay business. She had a lot of experience in the past in college admissions essays, in college admissions consulting, and in operations of businesses like that. Right now, we're in the process of transitioning most of my work over to her related to that business such that I could spend the bulk of my time on Cogent, which is our workforce communication brand.
3: When it comes to the college admissions landscape, obviously a lot has changed before COVID, during COVID, and of course, hopefully now that we're emerging from COVID. What is the biggest and most frightening opportunity for the future of college admissions?
2: One of the things that COVID did is it dramatically expedited an increase in applications per student. All of the highly selective institutions basically saw a 50% increase in their applications in the year post COVID. And that's pretty much maintained basically at this point. The number of applications are up, the number of acceptances stay the same. So the admission rate goes way down. So it's becoming substantially more competitive. and at same time you have this move to test optional which makes it even harder for colleges to evaluate students from an academic perspective the college admissions essay the, the role that we play is becoming dramatically more important actually in the admissions process moving forward just in terms of differentiating students with relatively similar academic profiles in terms of that we're seeing obviously a big uptick in our business associated with that but i think long term when you're thinking about college admissions overall is that on the side of the business that is in college admissions that is not highly selective, you see this huge shift basically towards fewer students actually enrolling in two-year and four-year institutions because there is substantial work opportunities out there and people not wanting to take on college debt. So there's a big opportunity there in that space. And it's kind of a massive shift in the entire education market and the post-secondary education market right now in the United States. And it'll be very intriguing to see where does that go within the next five to 10 years as more education moves online and as enrollments actually decline due to actually population trends in the United States as well. So there's a... A huge shift that's going to happen sometime in the next five, 10 years in higher education, much less affecting our business and focus on unselective or highly selective institutions. But I'm going to say the lower end of the spectrum, but the side of part of post-secondary education that helps the most students, there's going to be far fewer students than there are seats available for those students.
3: So those are the opportunities. What about trends that might be concerning or perhaps frightening to you?
2: The most frightening trend that I've seen in education is a continued focus on completion over learning outcomes. Over the past several decades, there's been an increase in high school graduation rate, college graduation rates, and it looks great on paper. But when you actually look at what are the students actually learning, it's not improved or has actually gotten worse in many cases and that is creating a massive problem for students that are graduating and entering the workforce such that in the case of writing skills, fewer than one in 10 students that exit our education system in the United States at any point during that education system actually has adequate writing skills for the workforce. And so this is a massive problem that's affecting companies down the line. I I see very little work actually on improving learning outcomes and actual efficacy just across the entire K-12 and post-secondary education system. Brad, thank you. very much. All right. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it.
3: Brad Schiller, the founder and CEO of Prompt and also Cogent. Thank you for joining us on The Language of Business. Don, back to you.
0: Thanks, Greg. Support for The Language of Business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts or Ask Alexa. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of The Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswe Media. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio production, editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Keller. Thanks for listening to the Language of Business.